Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And in honor of International Friendship Day, which is August 3rd, Kristen and I are looking at the science of friendship. What benefits friendship has for you? What does it mean to have a BFF? What will that BFF bring to your life? And how the role of friendship has sort of changed and evolved over the centuries, because even the Greeks used to talk quite a bit about friendship in their philosophy. Yeah, obviously, friendship is something that goes back throughout human history. And uh, Aristotle had a well-known philosophy on the different types of love, one of which is philia, which is affectionate regard or friendly feeling. And our deepest and closest friendships probably also intersect with the idea of agape, which is love for humankind. Although, um, do you think that it crosses ever into eros? Probably. Could. The passionate love. Yeah. Philia with benefits. <laughs> yeah. Well, people often talk about how they marry their best friends. Yeah. So those Venn diagrams can often intersect. Yeah, that's right. And it's interesting. I mean, like not to get off on a tangent, but it's interesting that like even the idea of quote unquote marrying your best friend is relatively kind of recent development. I mean, marriage for centuries was just sort of an economic agreement. Right. There there wasn't this idea that, oh, you, you marry someone that you would like to <laughs> live with for the rest of your life. It would be, yeah. oh, no, someone will be selected for you that will benefit. Yeah. I mean, because it's fine. We're all going to die at 32. Our children will be apprenticed out. It's fine. Yeah. Nobody has to like each other. Yeah. And who cares anyway? Because no one has Facebook to know what each other is up to or how happy everyone is or is not. That's right. And uh, Aristotle definitely did not have Facebook. And author Massimo Pigliucci, who who wrote a book about the philosophy of friendship, uh, talks about Aristotle's philosophy and his theories that basically friends, he thought that friends sort of had this mirroring role in each other's lives. They could sort of hold a mirror up to each other to help them improve personally, help each other improve, and that they would help each other achieve this thing called eudaimonia, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, which is often translated now as happiness. Maybe literally in the Greek, it meant having a good demon. So you would help each other achieve that that thing you were chasing, that elusive happiness. That ha- that that good demon inside of you? That's right. I like that. I just thought I was hungry, but apparently it's happiness. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just your little ha- happy demon inside of you asking for a sandwich. Um, but if we move into more contemporary times and look at how the nature of friendship has changed It's interesting that more of that Eros type of passionate love has shifted from the person who would have been like our our closest friend and confidant to these days more commonly to a spouse or a long term partner. Because, for instance, if you look back in the Victorian era at the closest of female friendships. And if you read letters that women wrote to each other, and even that men wrote to each other during this time, they were so effusive and just almost passionate in their love for the other person. Yeah, because that was okay. That was okay. There was no, there was nothing in society really that was dictating that it was weird to be like really like passionately in like 
with your friends, especially like in terms of when we think of male friendships back around this time and it being okay to be physically affectionate. Yeah. If you look, for instance, at Abraham Lincoln and his best friend, Joshua Speed, they shared a tiny bed for four years while they were living together, obviously, in their bachelor days. And that was no big deal. I mean, some people today think, oh, well, that must mean that Lincoln must have been doing something with Joshua's speed. But actually, that kind of physical intimacy that you also see reflected in photos of male friends at the time where they might be holding hands or touching uh, one person's shoulders or even in sort of a, a side hug, a platonic side I dug. It wasn't so strange at the time. And some think that the Industrial Revolution, the rise of organized sports and outdoor activities led to that breakdown, in particular, of male platonic intimacy. And for women, the idea of having that closer, more emotional, intimate best friendship was uh, a little bit more of a normalized idea because there's been that long-standing idea of women just being the nurturing, emotive sex. But even still, when you get to the 1920s for both men and women, it wasn't so okay to be as passionately in friend love with your BFF because this was around the time when you have the rise of homophobia. Yeah. And so when you have something to be afraid of, you have to actively show that you are not that thing. And in this case, it was it was the rise of the idea of what is manly and masculine and what is female and feminine. And homophobia was really tied up in that. And so the idea of having that like physically affectionate, uh, close relationship, whether you're a man or a woman, was just not hunky-dory anymore. Well, and also with the Industrial Revolution, you have with that the the rise of the companionate, in-love marriage that we think of today. Mm -hmm. And so that's when you start to see that kind of emotion and closeness transposed from the best friendship into the marriage. And a lot of parents became concerned at this time, particularly for their daughters, that if they seem too close to their best friend, then they weren't going to make a good wife. You know, they could p- sort of practice, you know, being uh, compassionate and kind to someone else. But there was definitely uh, this line that was drawn and was perpetuated by psychoanalysts in the 1920s who warned about the, quote, perversions of the libido that were the tendencies of teenage girls to fix their affections on members of the same sex. I mean, that's silly, right? I mean, like, as far as being concerned about young girls spending a lot of time together. Yeah, well, and I would assume, too, that the the penalties for that were would be much harsher for men at the time, because I feel like now... Maybe we're just not freaking out as much. But, for instance, it's so much more common, it seems like, for groups of girls to get together and have slumber parties Mm -hmm. and play with each other's hair and do Mm -hmm. each other's makeup and that kind of stuff that involves lots of physicality. Whereas boys' friendship physicality is often uh, more of the rough-and-tumble play. There's not that same kind of intimacy. Right. They're probably not uh, sharing a bed like (laughs) Abraham Lincoln and Joshua Speed. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, because they have to prove that they're masculine. Yeah. And so you can't have that intimacy. Yeah. But, I mean, speaking of intimacy and things that are good for you, friendship has a ton of health benefits. And these health benefits have been asserted over and over again forever. And you're probably familiar with a lot of them, including the psychological ones that uh, Mayo pointed out. They include increasing your sense of belonging and purpose, boosting your happiness and reducing stress, helping to improve your self-confidence and self-worth, help you cope with traumas, and also encouraging you to change or avoid unhealthy lifestyle habits. These are all kind of hallmark psychological benefits of close friendships. Well, and that last point, too, that the Mayo Clinic noted, encouraging you to change or avoid your unhealthy lifestyle habits, really harkens back to that Greek idea of the good friend helping you find your... You're a good demon inside of you. Yeah, you're a good demon, whether that's just goodness or a margarita. Yeah. So whatever. But, you know, all of that well-being, once you've achieved all that well-being, that definitely leads to a lot of potential physical benefits. Things like better brain health. Harvard researchers back in 2008 found that strong social ties could actually promote brain health as we age. And so, you know, that's why... It's even critical when we talk about like aging populations and older people being alone and how awful that is. The stronger your social network, the better you'll be as far as emotional health and brain health. And the lower stress levels associated with having close and healthy friendships also <laughs> leads to us being less likely to get colds. I mean, it, it, this is just like one example of how it does improve our overall health. Yeah, and studies have also pointed out that this kind of social support can lower blood pressure, protect against dementia, and reduce the risk of depression. So it's apparently pretty important to have friends, you guys. And all in all, this adds up to the possibility that we might live longer as one byproduct of having friendships. Uh, there was a 2005 study published in the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health, which tracked a group of Australians over 10 years, and they found that those with a large circle of friends were 22% less likely to die during the study period than those with fewer friends. And I'm sure there are other issues in there as well. Yes. But I mean, that is, that's, that's impressive. 22% is nothing to, to uh, sneeze at. Sneeze at. Okay. Achoo. <laughs> and when you look at women in particular, um, Friendship also has an effect on women who are battling breast cancer, as uh, a study in 2006 in the Journal of Clinical Oncology showed. Um, they did a study of nearly 3,000 nurses who had breast cancer and found that the women without close friends were four times as likely to die from breast cancer as women with 10 or more friends. And I think it's worth noting that proximity and the amount of contact with the friend or friends was not associated with survival. It was just the fact that you have friends who love you in your life that was the protective factor. Having a spouse, however, was not associated with survival rates. It's all about the friends. Well, and men can also benefit from friendships as well. This was a study published in the journal Psychosomatic Medicine, which looked at a group of Swedish men over six years and found that 
those with solid friendships more than an attachment to one person, you know, just having the spouse perhaps in the home, appeared to affect the risk of heart attack and fatal coronary disease in a positive way, probably lowered the chance of that happening. Now, again, these are kinds of correlation versus causation associations to make, but nonetheless, the evidence is pretty strong that all in all, Healthy friendships mm-hmm. are healthy for us. However, and this is something probably all moms did in fact tell us many times when we were growing up, not so healthy friendships can negatively impact us. Sure. Yeah, it totally makes sense. If your close friends are boozing it up or smoking or doing whatever, then you are also more likely to do that, especially if you have a strong desire to fit in. Um, there was a study back in 2012 in basic and applied social psychology that found that when you perceive a greater alcohol use among your best friends, that predicts in you higher levels of willingness to consume alcohol. So basically, if it's the norm in your brain, whether it's true or not, if the norm in your brain is that your friends are drinking and smoking and doing whatever, you are more likely to abuse those substances yourself. Yeah, and there was a recent study that came out in the British Medical Journal which found that friends steer our decisions in when we were school age more so than parents. And remembering when I was, you know, 13, 14 years old, that is not a surprising finding at all because friends are so much cooler than parents at that time anyway. <laughs> but they found that specifically the impact of having a smoker as a close friend during adolescence is greater than that of having a smoking parent or siblings when it comes to predicting whether you shall smoke in adulthood, not just whether you're going to be out in the schoolyard smoking some smokes that you stole from some cigarette stubs you found on the ground. <laughs> yeah, some, some, some <laughs> misty stubs <laughs> that you snagged. And another um, factor that comes into play is also having cross-sex friendships uh, among adolescents. This was a study in 2006 in the Journal of Psychology looking at kids in urban settings in 6th, 7th, and 8th grades. So not only did they find that developing cross-sex friendships is more likely to lead to or be related to popularity, but they also found a lot of stuff regarding smoking and drinking. Having these cross-sex friendships is also linked to the perception among seventh graders that the best friends' attitudes about smoking and drinking are less negative. It's also linked to higher levels of cigarette use among sixth and eighth graders, in addition to more alcohol use among sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. So does that mean then that our parents were right when, you know, they warned us, like, don't hang out with old Johnny who's smoking those, he smokes cigarette butts from Virginia <laughs> Slims. He, he'll turn out like he's a bad apple. I, well, I think, I think it's interesting and there's probably a lot more details that you could look into or that maybe are actually in the full study if we were to read the full study. But I think it's interesting to look at cross-sex friendships in this very impressionable age when your hormones are raging and you're really insecure. Everybody's really insecure and doesn't know what's going on in life um, and how that's linked to popularity. And then what does it mean to be popular? And then you're thinking about the norms of like, oh, well, if Johnny and Susie are smoking, then that's cool and I can do it and... 
There's a lot wrapped up in there. That, to me, just sets off alarm bells of the terror of being a parent. Because <laughs> you have to take in all of those different variables Yeah. when talking to little Suze about how to manage those kinds of peer pressures. Yeah, but we there's even more on cross-sex friendships that we'll get into in a minute. But let's talk about sort of beyond just the physical and emotional and mental effects of friendship. Let's talk about the science of friendship because there have been some really interesting studies in the past couple of years, including one that um, took MySpace into account. And side note, this study came out in 2011, which was seems surprisingly recent considering that they were using MySpace data. Yeah, I actually double-checked that date. I was like, that's got to be like 2001, not 2011. But it, Was this just a study that Tom yeah. <laughs> conducted? Yeah, seriously. Everybody's top friend. But so this study was talking about this thing called cognitive alliances, and they used the MySpace top 10 friends system. If any of you were on MySpace, you remember how fraught that was. Yes. Like, you know, I broke up with him, and so I'm moving him out of my top friends. Or like, oh, we met, and she's cool, so I'm going to put her in my top friends. Yeah, I remember when I was setting up my MySpace account so long ago now, and how it was... Just a terrifying experience to, you know, so carefully select who would be in that top 10 to make you look as good. And by you, I mean me look as good as possible. I'm so glad that went away. I'm yeah, I we don't we don't need extra bad feeling stuff like that. And looking at these top 10 friends, researchers found support for their alliance hypothesis, which basically held that human friendship is caused by cognitive systems that function to create alliances for potential disputes. So, like, I guess your top 10 friends would function as your, you know, your gang of ruffians in case the neighboring gang of ruffians on MySpace came up and tried to beat you up. But... They also found that because an ally's support can be undermined by a stronger outside relationship, the alliance model predicts that people will prefer partners who rank them above other friends. So I'll like you more if you like me more. So this whole idea is that we form friendships and strong friendships as human humans as sort of a status power grab to ensure that if people we don't know with threatening statuses come along, then we have a leg to stand on. Yeah, kind of that we just have these mental and emotional alliances that we form that become stronger the more the other person shows that we're valued. That takes out all of the romance <laughs> of friendships for me. Don't worry, it gets even weirder. I thought it was so that you could trade those necklaces that are the, the broken hearts. You get one half and I get the other. Yeah. No. Well, so there's this, there was this really interesting New York Times article a couple years ago, um, talking to scientists Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler, who, along with co-researcher Jamie Settle, have done a lot of studying up on friendship networks, how and why we form these connections, and how health-related risks and benefits end up being kind of transmitted from person to person or even skipping a person and going on to somebody else. And they use the National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent Health and this thing called the Framingham Heart Study, which followed people in Framingham, Massachusetts for several generations to see how their personal connections and interactions affected their health. Yeah, and, and Framingham, the Framingham Heart Study is a fascinating one because it's almost this ideal study population because so many people who grew up 
in Framingham stayed mm-hmm. in Framingham. So it gives them this, they can sort of isolate environmental variables and toy around with all of that. And uh, these researchers found some really compelling evidence for how good and bad behaviors spread through our social networks from both our best friendships all the way to acquaintances or even people we've never met before. Yeah, and they kind of treated it like a virus. Things like quitting smoking, losing weight, and being happy. Those are obviously good attributes. And they watched how these things could spread or crop up versus negative habits like picking up smoking, gaining weight, and becoming less happy. So if if you're looking just at the weight thing. They found that obesity broke out in clusters. And a lot of scientists who countered this said, well, it's probably environmental. Maybe more fast food restaurants opened, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they found out that it didn't really relate at all to something like a McDonald's opening in the neighborhood. They found that even if a friend in that group moved away and gained weight, her social circle back home was gaining weight, too, and that the risk of obesity increased even if a friend of a friend of a friend gained weight. What is going on with that? Yeah, that kind of pattern was so consistent that these researchers termed it the three degrees of influence that what you are doing can have effect, uh, you know, to your friends of friends of friends Mm -hmm. and vice versa. Yeah. Um, another theory that was discounted was this thing called homophily, which is basically like associates with like. But again, that's kind of discounted by the fact that Susie can move away to a different state and gain weight and her friends back home are still gaining weight. But some of the things they looked at among these friend groups are maybe there's some subconscious social signaling at work. As our friends become heavier, we change our perception of what obese looks like and therefore give ourselves permission to gain a little weight because maybe it's not so bad. Or if we don't gain weight, maybe we just simply become more accepting of other people in our social circles who do. So maybe they don't feel as bad about watching what they eat. Well, and this jumped out too. spouses tend to have less of an effect on us, uh, particularly in this area of weight gain that they looked at. They have less of an effect than close friends do because our ideas about weight in particular are more influenced by people of the same sex, which makes sense mm-hmm. because, you know, we're looking to, you know, people who are more, we're looking at essentially like the beauty standards of our group. Sure. Absolutely. And they found the degree of friendship matters. So this is sort of like what we were talking about with these cognitive alliances a second ago. If Steve likes Peter more than Peter likes Steve, Steve will gain weight when Peter does. He'll be influenced by Peter's weight gain. But Peter's weight won't be influenced by Steve's because he doesn't, whatever verb you want to use, value Steve as much, notice Steve as much, care about Steve as much. But if there's a mutual degree of friendship, the weight effect is significant. Poor Steve, though. Poor Steve. (laughs) What did he do do wrong? (laughs) And that sounds a lot like... That alliance hypothesis Mm -hmm. that you just mentioned from that MySpace study. Right, exactly. So how you view your friends and how they view you, beyond just like the actual closeness factor, what really exists, like how you view your friendship matters too, I guess. But if we go back to Aristotle talking about mirroring, you know, he said that friends hold a mirror up to you to help you achieve your happiness. We should bring up mirror neurons because Christakis, Fowler, and Settle also talked about mirror neurons and happiness. Simply the fact that the more happy people you're exposed to on your in your day-to-day life or in your social network, the more often your spirits are lifted. And so 
It's the kind of thing, like, I feel like we've seen marketing campaigns and advertising campaigns that are kind of based on this idea where if one person does something nice for you and then you do something nice for the next person, suddenly the whole network is happier and more polite. Um, and so it's sort of that idea of, like, mirror neurons. As as you smile at someone, they might smile at someone else. And soon, like, all of our friends are smiling at each other and they don't know why. Yeah, and anecdotally, all of this kind of the ripple effect of friendship rings so true thinking about the patterns of my friends and even broader social networks as I have moved through my 20s mm-hmm. and now I'm approaching my 30s and just how our socializing habits have changed to center more around like domestic activities. We aren't going out so much. We're doing more things like going on a day hike rather than going on a night bar crawl. Right. And it's like as soon as one person or one couple started doing that, then someone else took note and they started doing it. And then you see their pictures on Facebook and you're like, well, maybe I need to chill out too. <laughs> and it's like we all have collectively become just in general, like less wild. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it has a lot to do not so much with like, oh, well, we're turning 30. We must be boring. But I think it's probably a lot of this, like the epidemic of friendship, essentially. Yeah. Like what you perceive the norm to be. Yeah. Um, I want to do what Peter's doing because Peter apparently is the cool guy. <laughs> I actually want to be Peter, but. <laughs> well, watch out if Peter has the DRD2 gene. Oh, uh, well, then you better watch out because another thing that Christakis and Fowler found was that there is a genetic component to friendship. And this obviously needs a lot more research. But one thing that they found their 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 preliminary findings are that friendship can be influenced by certain genes. And the gene DRD2, which I kept in my mind saying R2D2, influences drinking behavior. People with this gene are not only susceptible to certain behaviors, including drinking and alcoholism but are susceptible to making friends with those exact same behaviors. So there's an argument for like with like. So I party all the time. I want to be friends with people who party all the time. But now there might be a genetic component behind that as well. It's your R2-D2 genes all coming together. This is not the droid I'm looking for. No. No. You need a C-3PO. That's right. Um, But they also found a second gene that showed that people are attracted to their opposite opposites when it comes to other certain behaviors. So There's a lot of, I think, research that still needs to be done there. But the fact that you might be attracted to certain people, whether romantically or on on a friendship level, because of genetics, that's really interesting. Well, one of the things I was reading about was talking about how, and we hear about this a lot more in terms of our romantic attractions, how we tend to subconsciously seek out partners who are more genetically diverse so mm-hmm. that it will give our offspring a better chance of survival. Whereas with friends, we seek out people subconsciously who are more like genetically similar. Mm-hmm. Because we want to tend and befriend. That's right, especially for ladies. Yeah, and speaking of which, we have some gender differences to get into in our friendship patterns and also talk about how making friends changes over our individual life terms. Because as I'm sure a number of our listeners who are maybe heading into their 30s and beyond can attest, making friends as you get older changes. It can be a bit more challenging for a number of reasons that we will get into. Okay, but if we look at gender stuff first, um, I thought that the... The search for numbers on around this topic was interesting in and of itself because there's a lot of studies looking at 
at how many friends the average man has, but not so many specific numbers for women. And I'm wondering if that's not because people just assume that women have so many more friends and that men don't make close relationships. And so that's more interesting and they want to study that more. But if you look at men's friends in particular, this is from a 2012 men's health survey. So keep that in mind. But they found that the average guy has 4.8 close friends whom he keeps in contact with primarily through text. And 75% of guys said they had a best friend, 59% of those who had known him since high school. Yeah, and I, I do think that you're right, that there is so much of an assumption that women just make friends all the time mm-hmm. and that we will have a bestie at all points during our life, although that bestie might change, that there's more focus on, well, what of men? Because there's been a lot more research into the dynamics of female friendships, but I think it's more because it's a given so there's not as much attention to tallying up, well, just how many yeah. friends does a woman have? Well, yeah, because she's always tending and befriending, so we don't have to really worry about her. This is this is something that we've talked about before a lot on the podcast. We talked about it in our female friendships episode a while ago, but it's the fact that women tend to respond to stress with this huge flood of brain chemicals that cause us to make and maintain friendships with other women in particular. Yeah, this landmark study found that when we hang out with our lady friends, when we go out for Sex in the City style brunches every every weekend somehow, uh, it actually releases the bonding chemical oxytocin in our brain. And so we feel tended and befriended. And that is sort of the more female analog to the fight or flight response. Right. And just that women, when women get stressed, our oxytocin makes us go towards one another, whereas men's testosterone testosterone makes them go the other way. And female brains seem to really like this tending and befriending because further research has found that once we reach out to our friends, we get a little shot of oxytocin in our brain. The more that we do it, the more oxytocin our brains yeah. release. So we're just like hugging all the time. Like I can't stop. I'm just hugging my friends all the time. Well, it's true. There is a certain kind of crisis management that a very best friend can offer that no one else can offer. Even say a spouse or a girlfriend or a boyfriend yeah. or a family member. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what's really jumped out to me as so interesting in all of these various studies, that it's like, nope, it's friendship. It's those close platonic friendships that really save you and protect you. Well, and I wonder if it is that oxytocin connection that explains something that's called the steel magnolias effect, which is this study finding that women tend to rate their female best friends more highly than guys rate their guy friendships. Like we, we seem to value that even more. Or maybe it might also be like a, a thing of self-reporting where maybe we simply gush more about <laughs> our girlfriends than guys gush about their guy friends because I never want to contend that male friendships are, are no less strong and important. Um, but it, it, but it is interesting and it's also, yes, called the steel magnolias effect. <laughs> 
Well, I think that ties in with a study, a 2000 study that was published in the journal Adolescence, where they basically put boy friends and girl friends in rooms together and let them kind of hang out and chit chat and kind of looked at the way that the two boys talked to each other versus the two girls and what they talked about. And boys ended up rating their relationships with best friends higher in conflict than did girls. But what's interesting about that is it's not that there's not conflict. It's they the, the researchers were saying that like the guys would just like hash it out. Like, what's your problem? Uh, Here's my problem. More confrontational. Girls are less likely to be as confrontational to one another and to maybe talk about Betty Sue behind her back. Ugh, Betty Sue. But I know Betty Sue and Peter. Like, oh, God. So anyway, but girls rated lower in withdrawal and higher in communication skills and support validation than boys. So girls are better at talking about things. Although sometimes that talking happens behind the back. Um, just one side note on girl code versus guy code. There has been a, some other research which has suggested that girls, especially like adolescent girls, tend to hold their besties to higher girl code standards mm-hmm. than guys do for mm-hmm. their guy friendships. And I think it's partially because of the fact that maybe boys tend to be a little bit more confrontational to each other than girls do because Conflict resolution within, you know, 13 year old girl friendships can be (laughs) challenging at times. Yeah. Well, so I promised you that we would talk about cross sex friendships again. And here it is. Uh, we're, we're still talking about adolescents and boys and girls here. And there was a 2008 study in the Journal of Youth Adolescence that looked at gender, age, cross-sex friendships, and what that means regarding antisocial behavior. I read the study and I was like, oh, God, I had a lot of good guy friends in high school. Oh, Lord. Anyway, so here it is. They found that boys who had only same-sex best friends and girls who had other sex best friends endorsed higher rates of antisocial behavior. Having other sex best friends predicted antisocial behavior from six to seventh grade and eighth to eleventh grade, especially for girls. So what does that mean then? I mean, are they basically saying that maybe uh, girls who are getting along better with guys just don't get along as well with girls, and so they're calling it antisocial behavior? I don't know, but I wonder if it ties back to the other cross-sex friendship study, which talked about popularity. It talked about choosing bad behaviors and things like smoking and drinking and the fact that girls who had more cross-sex friendships were more likely to engage in this behavior or think it was normal. So that's that's an interesting finding. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't know. It sounds the the language that it uses sounds almost so alarmist because we hear antisocial. Yeah, think oh no, but I, don't- I think in this case antisocial means something a little gentler than the way it sounds. I think it means like maybe just things that go against the norm. Mm-hmm. Well, as we move out of adolescence and into adulthood, research has also suggested that our patterns of cross-sex friendships also change and essentially women like move away from having a best guy friend usually in uh, heterosexual relationships that would be of a husband and it moves away from them to another female 
as we get older. Yeah, usually the daughter. I am a perfect example of this. Like, so this study, this 2012 study looked at basically phone records. Who were people calling? And for several years, the woman was calling a man all the time. And then slowly that shifted to be a woman, typically the daughter. So my mom calls me all the time. You know, like, I can't access my ebooks. Well, did you buy them? I don't know. Well, okay, call Peach Mac. Um, call but, Betty Sue or Peter, Mom. Yeah, I'm busy. Maybe they can deal with it, since Peter's so cool. Um, but what they found was that men show a more consistent pattern of being linked to a female best friend their entire lives, which I think, judging by the fact that they qualified the male best friend as someone who became the husband, typically... This just sounds like this just sounds like whereas the wife starts calling the daughter instead of the husband, the husband keeps calling the wife. Yeah. Which I think is also a pattern that holds true in my family. My my mother calls me all the time. My father calls my mother. Yeah. So I think that's all that is. Well, and that brings up then how our pattern of making friends changes as we age. And if we're sort of backing out of the gendered lens and looking just at age, um, there was a 2008 study in the Journal of Experimental Education looking at school attitudes and friendship. And as you might expect, adolescents who felt that they were valued and respected by their classmates were more likely to report adaptive achievement motivation. And what does that mean? That just means that you're more likely to foster this long-term achievement in school. You're more likely to have good quality friendships that put a value on academics versus poor quality friendships and viewing classmates as resistant to school norms. That's related to reports of maladaptive achievement motivation. So basically, if you have good friends who value academics, you're going to consider it the norm. Again, there's that thing, the norm, and you are also going to value academics and do well in school. And then, though, as you start to make the transition from high school to college, it really starts to test your friendships, not so surprisingly. Um, during just the first year in college, high school best friendships declined in satisfaction, commitment, rewards, and investments, according to a 2003 study published in the journal Personal Relationships. And during this period, that the freshman year of college, there's also an increase in the costs and alternatives to best friend relationships. So it's not so surprising because you go to college, unless you're maybe bunking with your best friend from high school or still see them regularly, you're being introduced to a whole bigger, broader world of potential best friendships. Yeah, a bigger, broader world. And also maybe it's just harder to keep in touch with friends back home and that kind of thing. And so they found that what really helped these best friendships continue to thrive from high school through into college was maintenance behaviors. Also things like supportiveness, self-disclosure, interaction. Basically, the more you continue to communicate on a really intimate level, like constantly and consistently, the better that friendship will be maintained. Well, and that completely jives with a 2000 study uh, called Forecasting Friends Forever, which I, I really enjoyed that study title. But these researchers collected data across 19 years of different friends, starting when these friends were in college. And after 19 years, obviously, like a lot of these people had had kids. They had moved an average of like 5.6 times, uh, which is kind of funny because like, what does moving 0.6 mean? It just means math is awkward sometimes. (laughs) 
And they found that expressions of intimacy at the outset of the study, like when, you know, these friends were talking about each other when they were still in college, was not a major predictor of whether they would still be friends 19 years later. So if you were like, oh, my God, we're just so best friends. She's awesome. I love her. We'll be friends forever. Mm, Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. It was more the level of interdependence and essentially thinking and perceiving the world in similar kinds of ways Mm -hmm. that most strongly predicted whether they would be friends almost two decades Later, And so the researchers recommended that really learning to communicate and sort of figuring out how each person sees the world and what your value systems are Mm -hmm. and all of that matters the most if you want to be friends forever. Yeah, like I have two friends, both of whom I've known forever. Um, But one, she and I, our communication styles are very similar in that we don't. You know, we've been friends forever. We we love and adore each other, but we can go very, very long times without seeing or hearing from each other. And then when we do see each other, we just have a glass of wine and pick right back up where we left off. And it's great. Another friend that I know um, that I've had forever, she has a slightly different set of needs and expectations. And, you know, that's always dangerous in any type of relationship too. expectation. But, um, you know, she's really hurt if we go for too long without speaking to each other. And so that relationship requires a different type of effort and energy and communication style. Well, and the importance is that you know that and you recognize that. Yeah. So you're not kind of, you know, because you clearly can communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. So it's more (laughs) the frequency of communication. And I'm the same way with my closest friends. We will go for long periods of time without talking because I'm just, I'm really not a phone talker. I'm more of a podcast talker, Caroline. I'm Um, not a, I'm not a phone talker either. And that mm -hmm. does make a lot of things difficult. Like my mother all the time. (laughs) Oh, that's different. Hey, Sally. But the older you get though, it can be challenging to make new friends because obviously, you know, those, some of those friendships from say high school and college do fade away because you develop your own life and your own rhythm and probably move and maybe meet someone that you settle down with. And um, one of this is sort of a side note, but one major milestone that some that the survey found is a great predictor uh, of making new friends is having a baby. Yes. If you're feeling lonely, just have a baby. Oh, God, don't don't know. But yes, this is a survey. So, you know, keep in mind, it's not like an academic study. But a 2013 survey funded by Nature's Purist, a baby products company, found that 53 percent of new moms said it was easier to bond with other women after having a baby. And 70 percent of those said it was because they had so much in common. And in my brain, I'm just like, you have a baby in common. But of course, that brings with it like an entirely new life. And a lot of these moms surveyed said not only did they now have things in common like um, post baby sex worries or, you know, body worries or like I haven't slept in seven months anymore ever. They're also worried about just boring their old friends with baby talk. Yeah. I mean, that that those survey findings make total sense. Um but when it comes to just making friends, if you aren't in, you know, a, a baby circle, it can be challenging. This was something that Alex Williams wrote about not too long ago in the New York Times. And he said that you sort of have to resign yourself once you get into your 30s of making what he calls kind of friends 
instead of best friends. They're not like the super best friends that you would hang out with, almost like cheer style, like every night you hang out and it's awesome. But it's more getting into the situational friend zone. So you have mm-hmm. your kind of friends that you will do outdoorsy stuff with. And then you have your kind of friends that are like movie buffs. So you go to like film festivals with them. And then you have your... I don't know. What what's another kind of friend? Uh computer nerd friends? Yes. Sure. Th- then you, you, you program computers together. Yes. Those friends. <laughs> um yeah, but he says that you've like once you've crossed the threshold into your thirties, you're now in the situational friend zone. Do 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 do. Oh, another big kind of friend. The couple friend. You yeah. know, the, the the two people that get along really well so you can hang out. At a four top. There you go. Well, so what's going on around this age? Psychology professor Laura Carstensen, who is the director of the Stanford Center on Longevity in California, has observed that people tend to interact with fewer people as they move toward midlife, but that they end up growing closer to the friends they already have. Why? She kind of, this is depressing. She says that once we turn 30, it reminds us that our time horizons are shrinking, so we're less focused on exploration and more concentrating on the here and now. Yeah, just anecdotally speaking, that makes sense because, at least in my day-to-day, I can't really see much beyond the here and now because... I have no free time yeah. at all. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's also the whole issue, according to Marla Paul, who's the author of The Friendship Crisis, Finding, Making, and Keeping Friends When You're Not a Kid Anymore. Whew. She also says that the bar is simply higher than, than it was when we were younger, when we were in college and we're surrounded by like thousands of other humans and we can pick and choose our friends at will. We're not just willing to meet, in general, we're not just willing to meet just anyone for an after work margarita. Well, if, it, if there's a margarita involved, my bar is actually quite low. <laughs> quite low. But in ter- yeah, in terms of like forming really close friendships. Sure. I be- think it takes a little more now. Because I guess once you're 30, you know, your politics are set, your religious views are set, like all of these important things and your, your view on kids and marriage and whether you're going to do that is set. Also, your schedule is very set. Yeah. Um, but what if, if you are interested in making a new solid friendship, There are three criteria that sociologists say are critical for forging those bonds, which are proximity, repeated and unplanned interactions, and a setting that encourages people to let their guard down, i.e. margaritas. Yeah. um, And also confide in each other. And those might seem like a simple set of criteria, but actually... Finding all of those in one, that is a challenge. Yeah, because once you're like 30-ish and you're in the working world, it is harder. Like, you, you know, you have work friends, but work is an interesting situation because people move on and change jobs. They compete with each other for roles and tasks and whatever else they're competing for. And different people earn less and more than each other. So there's that whole money issue, too. And if you're in a relationship... If you're looking for couple friends, it's like matchmaking for two. Do all four people like each other? That's a whole other thing. So what do we do then? Obviously, we have more challenges as we get older to finding new friends. And if you're in the market for a new friend, I think one one good piece of advice that Tracy Moore at Jezebel offered was that you you need to just go lots of places, do lots of things that you like to do. Essentially, set yourself up 
to meet people who are like you, whether that's joining an outdoor group or volunteering regularly or essentially like pursuing your passion Mm -hmm. where other people will be pursuing a similar passion. And that right there will give you a foundation to start from. Right, because we're not 16 anymore. Hopefully we're beyond the point where we lie about our interests and, you know, what we like and don't like. And so the more you put yourself in a situation where you are genuinely happy and doing something that you love, the more chance you'll meet somebody who also really loves doing that thing. Well, and one theme that I hear a lot when I talk to girlfriends my age about this process of meeting new friends is that it feels very much like dating. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Being a grown up and finding a new friend. And I've, yeah, I not too long ago had this conversation with a mixed group, men and women, and everybody agreed it's like dating and that it's hard and, but that it's almost even more rewarding than going on several first dates, like with a possible romantic partner because at least like there's no pressure in the friendship thing. Yeah. Well, that that's another thing. It's like you you have to relieve yourself of being terrified that it, it that it might not work out because it might not you might not see this person. You yeah. might this person might not be your BFF, but that's okay mm-hmm. because he or she is busy, just like you are probably busy, and there are plenty of friend fish in the sea. That's right. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing that, that Tracy Moore said, too, is like the stakes are very low. You know, meet, meet people who make you happy, and if they don't make you happy or they don't hang around or you don't see them again, meh, you'll meet somebody else. Yeah. But I think it is important, I mean, particularly if you're in a situation where you've moved to a new city or you are at a new job, you're just sort of in like an unknown spot starting from zero yeah. and obviously want some face-to-face friends. It is, it, it is work in a lot of ways, like, like dating. If yeah. you want to, if you want to get out there, you got to put some effort into it. Yeah. But I think, yeah, to, to develop, I mean, anybody can have a circle of acquaintances where you're, you're friendly to people. But if you really are after like a very close friendship, it's so critical to be yourself. And I mean, I know we say that in terms of romantic relationships too, but like, how are you expected to have a BFF or a, a circle of close friends if you're acting like you're not who you say you are or something. Right. Because the truth will come out eventually. That's right. Uh, But there was one article that was in the Daily Mail. (laughs) So, but bear with me. It was simply um, a piece on friendships among women that had significant age gaps. Yeah. And it was just like anecdotes of how and why they got along so well. And it was fascinating to see these like much older women befriending much younger women and vice versa and how it's important to also, as we get older, to stay open to making friends who might not be within, you know, like two years on either side of our age because older folks or even younger folks, depending on how old you are, can make fantastic friends, too. Well, it's that whole diversity of experience thing. One thing that relationship coach Karen Smedley pointed out was that maybe you're at an age where all of your friends are having babies, but you either can't, don't want to, aren't ready, whatever. Having an older friend who, you know, having an older friend or a younger friend who's having a different life experience than your age group can be very valuable because it kind of takes the pressure off. You're like, oh, now I can see that there are other lifestyles out there. I don't have to have this pressure to do X, Y, Z that all my friends are doing. Yeah. But now, Caroline, is it time for us to ask folks for friendship stories? For sure. Well, we want to hear from you about your 
best friend and how friendship has affected your life. Uh, mom stuff at howstuffworks.com is where you can send us your letters. You can also, though, tweet us at mom stuff podcast or send us a message on Facebook. And one final making friends tip. You know, you can always bring up the podcast because, you know, if you both like the podcast, then hey, you got, you have like over 500 topics to talk about. That's right. So with that, we have a couple of letters to share with you, our friends, right now. Okay, I have a letter here from Anna who says that she used to get the question, no, where are you really from all the time? She says, my family is a mix of German, Croatian, Swedish, and Ukrainian, and I came out looking very Eastern European. My professors would pronounce my name with a strong accent during roll call and after class seemed very interested in asking where I was from. When I would reply, oh, about two hours north in Ohio, they would reply with no before that. I never quite knew how to respond. People have even gone so far as to speak to me in Russian or in very slow English. I also thought it might be interesting to give a perspective on exotic beauty from a slightly different perspective. I'm a very light-skinned, light-haired, green-eyed girl living in rural Japan. Not many foreigners visit this part of Japan, let alone live here, so for many people, I am their first white foreigner they have seen in person. The initial reaction is lots of squealing, with people touching my hair, getting uncomfortably close to my eyes, and complimenting me on how small my face is and how big my nose and eyes are. Those are apparently compliments. I've gotten many people asking me to take and use my photo for advertising purposes with no pay because I have that quote-unquote Russian beauty that is sought after here. It all seems very forced, ultra-polite, but definitely does make me feel an other. I would also like to add that the amount of products here to make people, women in particular, look Western is mind-boggling. Whitening creams, eye tape, colored contacts for less than the equivalent of $10 at a drugstore, hair lightening kits, and arm and face covers for the beach, cars, and bikes. Just thought I would share. Man, okay, well, thanks for the very interesting perspective, Anna. Well, I've got another letter here in response to our exotic beauty episode. This is coming from Lillian, who writes, I grew up in an inner-city neighborhood in northern New Jersey. As a biracial woman of Puerto Rican and Chinese ethnicity, I've encountered a really uncomfortable amount of fetishizing, not only from white men, but also from black and Hispanic men who generally watch too many kung fu movies. If I had a dollar for every time I've been told I'm comprised of, quote, the best of both worlds, or told that somehow my mix is superior for stupid stereotypical reasons, I'd be a very wealthy woman. Puerto Rican curves and a docile freak in the bedroom? The sex must be amazing. Imagine the food she can cook. The first person to call me exotic was my white male homeroom teacher in my freshman year of high school. That was an uncomfortable year. Fortunately, though, since then, I've heard the quote-unquote compliment so many times that I've developed the perfect response to it. Now, whenever someone calls me exotic, I say, oh, great, another one who wants to put me in a cage. A parrot is exotic. I'm from New Jersey. The resulting flash of embarrassment that tends to cross their faces is just priceless. So thanks, Lillian. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. But you can also reach us on Facebook and tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our podcasts, blogs, and videos, there's one place to go. And it's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 